0: Book of Nahum. Nahum is an interesting prophet because his name means consolation. It means comfort. But what he has to say regarding Nineveh is anything but comforting. In fact, Nahum is bringing a word against Nineveh that is appalling it's shocking it's devastating and you remember that we studied another prophet whose message was focused on Nineveh a hundred years it was a hundred years ago we studied him but a hundred years before Nahum the prophet Jonah brought a message about Nineveh and his message was uh, as reluctantly as as reluctant as he was to give it his message was, I'm about to bring judgment, and if you repent, God may spare you. And Jonah didn't want to deliver that message, because even then, they hated the Assyrians. And Nineveh was kind of the capital of Assyria, and they hated the Assyrians, and they they wanted them to be destroyed. And last thing Jonah wanted to do was bring a message of revival and see them turn back to God. And so... Uh, You know the story of Jonah, and that's not our text for this morning. But eventually he ended up there, and just as God promised, there was a revival. They turned to God. They put on sackcloth and ashes and repented. And there was a great uh, spiritual awakening that occurred in the city of Nineveh, and God spared the city. But this is a hundred years later. In fact, Nahum is probably prophesying after the fall of Israel in the north. You remember the two kingdoms, and Israel, the northern ten tribes, had separated in like a civil war. They had separated from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and they never ever had a period of spiritual renewal in the north. And God warned them and again and again and again that that eventually you're going to be judged and sure enough it was the Assyrians that brought judgment in the year 722 uh, BC the the um Assyrians brought judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel or and, and they went into captivity but now the message is coming against the Southern, uh, against the nation of Assyria and Nineveh. And she has continued to wreak havoc on her neighbors. She has continued to act cruelly. And God basically says, Your time is up. The time of judgment has come. Um, You're going to be judged, and no one is going to be able to help you. And that's the message of. Nahum, which is short for Nehemiah. Now, when you turn to the book of Nahum, and I hope you're there by now, chapter one, one of the things that we don't particularly care to think about today, we want to create an image of God that is uh, filled with, uh, you know, all kind of warm fuzzies. We want to kind of communicate God as, as a loving, tender, compassionate, kind, we emphasize that aspect of his nature so much so in our culture as evangelical Christians, you know, we, we just kind of want to shrink away from the judgment and the hell and the fire and the brimstone and all of that kind of thing, and so, so we want to present a God that is, that is so nice that we almost forget that He is a God of judgment and that He is a God who is also uh, capable of anger and wrath and vengeance. That's a word that we don't like to associate with God. Vengeance. It means, I'm going to get even. (laughs) I'm going to bring vengeance. I'm going to, to... punish you for what you've done, and I'm going to exact payment. But when we turn to Nahum, the prophet, and we see what he has to say, look at verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. I don't know how you think about words that kind of have you know, synonymous meanings, but they, they have levels of intensity. I think of people who get frustrated, and then they get irritated. This, this is kind of the way I think of it. They, they're frustrated, then they get irritated, and then they get angry. And then their anger t- turns into kind of rage and wrath. If, if you begin to take this down the stream a bit, uh, the the anger becomes rage and the rage exacts wrath and and vengeance and and when you get to the wrath and vengeance stage you know you're looking at eyes ablaze and a face that is only filled with anger and there's big trouble it's hard to imagine that kind of reaction that is still characterized by holiness and righteousness. But here's the amazing thing about God. He is capable, in His character, of exacting vengeance and being filled with wrath without in any way diminishing His holy character. In fact, it's His holiness that motivates His wrathfulness. And, and we read this in the opening verses of Nahum, and we say, wow, you know, th- this is not a God I may be comfortable with. This is a God who is pictured as, uh, look in verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger, but He's great in power, and He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's a powerful statement that no guilty person will escape the punishment and the judgment of God. It's an awesome statement. And then as Nahum goes on to unfold his prophecy, he says, "...in whirlwind and storm is his way. The clouds are dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry." He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of Him. The hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by His presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure his burning? the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by Him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of Nineveh's sight. That's the antecedent of the pronoun, it's Nineveh. Nineveh's sight, and will pursue His enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. That's, a, that's an amazing picture of God who has all of nature at his power. You know, while we were uh, singing and praising God this morning for just a little bit, I was reminded of the story of Job, and I went back to, to read a little bit of those opening chapters of Job. Because Job is, is an interesting study in what goes on in the realm of nature and who's behind it. Nahum says God is in charge of the winds and the rivers and the floods and the oceans and the hills and the earthquakes and all of those kinds of things. And he uses them to bring his judgment. But we we study Job and we find that in Job's case, the devil appears before the Lord and says, have you considered, you know, uh he's been it's actually God who asks the question if you consider Job and 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 the devil says well that's only because he has life on easy street if job had some trouble in his life he wouldn't love you as much and so god says to the devil he says i will allow you to touch him but you can't touch his body but i will allow you to touch his life and we'll see who loves whom and why now, poor Job was not party to this conversation. And I've often felt that he got left out of a vital meeting that he should have been at, you know. <laughs> but he was not party to this conversation. And so when the report comes in one day, there's four areas of his family that are being touched, and, and two of them are, are overrun by marauders and, and uh, warring armies, but two of them are stricken by lightning and by a strong wind. And it obviously is the attack of Satan against Job's family within the dominion of God. Sometimes we have a hard time with that. And I want to remind you this morning that every single thing that happens on this planet is not a direct action of God while it's also true to say that nothing happens on this planet without the knowledge of God, and nothing will happen on this planet to you without the permission of God. Does that scare you or give you comfort? It gives me comfort. And the reason that it does is because God says, I will never allow anything to touch your life that is greater than, than your capacity to bear it, and everything that touches you, I will be present to make a way of escape. And nothing will touch your life that I cannot turn around and use for your good. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I have a sovereign God who rules the universe and that, that even the devil can't touch me without divine consent. But not everything that touches me is the hand of God. Sometimes the enemy does come against me within that sovereign purview and God says He thinks He's going to bring you down. I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you stronger. I'm going to deepen your character. I'm going to come closer to you. David, after a great time of trial, said it was good that I was afflicted. Because if I had not been afflicted, I would not have discovered the goodness of my God. I wouldn't have discovered how much He loves me. I wouldn't have been as close to Him. Those are deep and heavy subjects for us. But I want us to recognize from the prophecy of Nahum, that while every storm and everything that happens in the face of the earth is not an act of God, as our insurance policies say, the reality is nonetheless that he is capable of using those things. And if we think that (laughs) we're just on this planet up to ourselves and, you know, we're in charge of things, well, the Ninevites were about to get a very rude awakening. Let me tell you a little bit about Nineveh. I want you to get a, a mental picture here. Of this city, this was a huge city in that time. It was a great city, 120,000 people. Now I realize when you talk about Chicago, that's nearly four million people. That that um, doesn't seem like a lot, but 120,000 people in the ancient world is a big city. In fact, we learned from Jonah that it took about uh, three days to walk across one suburb all the way across to the suburb on the opposite end. It was. It was uh, miles across Nineveh. But the city of Nineveh itself was, was a citadel that was well protected. It was founded back in Genesis chapter 10 by a guy named Nimrod. And from day one, it had never, ever been friendly toward God. Except for that brief revival under Jonah, Nineveh was by and large a pagan, godless, and wicked city. But a fortified city, there was probably no other city in the ancient world, or ever, that was as fortified as well as Nineveh. When you think of walls around a city, what do you think of? What, what do you imagine in your mind? You know, I think about these walls here that are on the side of our building. That's a pretty firm wall. At least it'll hold me back. You know, but but these these are concrete blocks, cinder block. They're Sixteen inches by eight inches by eight inches, and they have brick on the outside of them. So this wall is 12 inches thick. And, you know, several guys with a telephone pole as a battering ram could really knock a hole through this, if you think about it. But Nineveh had walls that were a hundred feet tall. Now, that's ten stories. They were a hundred feet tall. At the top, and they weren't built straight up, they were built kind of like a wedge. At the top, it was wide enough that they could drive three chariots abreast, side by side. Horses and chariots driving around the wall, and you know we're not talking inches on either side. They were, they were wide enough they could drive three chariots around the top of this ten-story wall. So, so imagine the walls of Nineveh. Now... Seven and a half miles around the city in circumference. A solid wall. On top of the wall were more than 1,200 defensive watchtowers. Each one occupied by a squadron of men in the army. 1,200 of them (coughs) circulating the city you could not approach the walls of Nineveh without being spotted. There was no place you could attempt to climb the walls without there being ten stories above you a group of guys looking down with bows and arrows and rocks and spears. If the walls weren't enough, The city had a moat around it, one continuous moat, 140 feet wide and 60 feet deep. So here you've got 100 foot walls behind a 140 foot wide moat that's 60 feet deep. 15 reinforced um, gateways into the city that were guarded and protected. Absolutely no way to penetrate this city. Inside of Nineveh, the, the Ninevites considered themselves a center of learning and culture. In fact, the, the last great king of the Assyrians, Assurbanipal, considered himself to be one of the most educated and literate kings of the ancient world. In fact, he was. And inside of Nineveh, they had botanic gardens. They had a zoo. They had libraries. And Asurbanipal had a library of over 10,000 volumes that covered the knowledge of all the known world. They had concerts and drama and theater. I mean, this was an amazing place. Who could bring down Nineveh? But the other interesting thing about Asurbanipal and the whole history of the Assyrians is they were among the most cruel people on the face of the planet. There have been, through the ages, horrific devices of torture designed. And, and all you have to do is just let your imagination go wild for just a moment. Without going into gory detail, let me just say that the Assyrians and Assurbanipal the king in particular were hideously evil. They sadistically delighted in the torture and the cruel treatment of all their captives. Kings and armies were uh, once captured were, were ju- just became an event for slaughter, but slow and painful and torturesome. And Asser Banipal, who claimed to be the most intelligent of the kings, was also the most cruel and wicked. You know, it's interesting that sometimes we associate superior intelligence with character and goodness. In fact the whole message of humanism is the smarter we get the more intelligent we get the better we're going to be able to manage our world and control our destiny and and really one day the smart people are going to turn this into utopia the reality is is that intelligence does not breed character or moral conviction, it often gives a person more inventive ways to be wicked. And Nasser was like that. And so, <clears throat> by the way, parents, that should give us all a message that the goal in raising children is to build character, not just to make them smart. Education is not the most important thing in the development of a child's life. Having moral character is undoubtedly the number one because smart people are not necessarily good people. God took note of this huge city and its incredible wickedness and the evil of the Assyrians. And he said, Your time is up. Your day has come. I'm done with you. The Medes were ready to to overrun the Assyrian Empire, but here's the capital that is unassailable. Now, if you're an invading army, how in the world do you take down a city that has walls 100 feet high, 40 feet thick at the top or more, and a moat around it, and is guarded constantly by 1,200 uh, watchtowers? But notice what God says through Nahum in verse 8. With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. In the year 612, Nineveh, which was built near the banks of the Tigris, experienced a flood. In fact, the Tigris overflowed its banks. It was the most unusual flood. There had never been one like that in history. And it washed under the walls near the river. They fell down. The Medes were waiting. When the walls crumbled, the armies rushed into Nineveh. And the the description of what happens is found in chapter 2, verse 3. Look at this for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 3. The shields of His mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When He is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race, race madly in the streets and rush wildly in the squares. Their appearances like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall and the mantlet is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. And it is fixed. She is stripped and carried away. Her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they're fleeing. Stop! Stop! But no one turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There's no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She's emptied. She is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. And anguish in the whole body and all their faces have grown pale. The Ninevites... One day woke up to the fact that the walls had fallen in the flood and the armies of the Medes were rushing through the streets in chariots and horsemen with spears and chariots flashing and dashing and people were being slain in the streets and the the nobles were pale and quaking and their knees were knocking. It was the end of Nineveh. Notice that Nahum says in verse 8 of chapter 1 that he will make a complete end of its site. When Alexander the Great in 331 B.C. marched through that region, he didn't even realize he had marched over the top of Nineveh. Nothing was left but hills and mounds of dirt and mud. And it wasn't until 1840 that the site was even discovered to be the site of the ancient city of Nineveh. Just 300 years after Assurbanipal and his arrogance, there was nothing even left of the site of the town. It was completely obliterated and destroyed, and Alexander the Great didn't even know it was there. Do you think God is capable of rendering judgment? Do you think He is able to bring to justice those whose cruelty has been renowned? Friends, we need to be encouraged by that. Not by the awful judgment of the ungodly, but we need to be encouraged that our God is keeping score and He never forgets. I will, He says, by no means... Clear the guilty. In the midst of Nahum's awful prophecy about Nineveh, there are a couple of bright spots. One of them is verse 7 of chapter 1 The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. You know, today all over the world, people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. People are coming to know Him. We know Him in this room. We don't know at what time judgment may fall upon our nation. We don't know at what time our nation will have run its course in the history of mankind. Believers in other countries and nations do not know the time or hour of their nation. But aren't you glad this morning to know that God knows your name? That wherever we live, whatever country we belong to, whatever land we're a part of, the Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. I'm not saying to you this morning that, that we might not die in some atomic holocaust. We could. What I'm saying is, there's no time when God does not know our name, and when, if we're a present when that kind of judgment comes, we ourselves are cocooned in the grace of God, and we will be lifted instantly into His presence because He knows those who are His. And the Scripture says, the Lord Jesus, in fact, said, do not be afraid of those that can kill the body. They're not the trouble. You need to be concerned about the one that can cast both body and soul into hell. You need to be concerned and aware of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you put your refuge in Him, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And He is a shield and bulwark to those who trust Him. I'm so grateful that I am safe this morning in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in verse 15 of chapter 1, there's this beautiful passage... We've written songs about it. Behold on the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news that announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely as Nahum sees the future of Judah in her restoration as the future nation of Israel. He brings this beautiful passage to us that the feet of those who bring good news and announce peace. I want to come back to that in a moment because it's our great opportunity to share the gospel. And look in chapter 2, verse 2, "...for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches." In the year that Nahum was prophesying after the fall of the northern kingdom and before the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah was nonetheless going through great political turmoil. It would be a mere 40 years before Judah was overrun by the Babylonians in her judgment. But God wanted her to know that he would remember Judah and would bring Israel back from the ashes and that she would be restored. What are the messages that you and I can take away from a prophecy like Nahum? Well, for one thing, we need to have a balanced view of God. We need to make sure that the God that we worship is the God of Scripture. Because if we have in our mind something different, we're not worshiping the God of the Bible, we're worshiping the God of our imagination, and we've become idolaters. We need to recognize that God is a God of goodness and mercy and tenderness and love. He is also a God of justice and holiness and judgment and wrath, yes, even wrath. We need to realize that people who have sinned against God and have no remedy for their sin will come one day under the wrath and the judgment of God. It's it's an inevitable reality. You know, there's two things today that we really struggle with in the church and I just Thursday uh, interviewed two men who were, along with the other members of our committee, were interviewing them for ordination. And there's two questions that we always want to ask of people to make sure that they have a clear understanding of the gospel. One of those questions is, does the justice of God demand that every single person hear the gospel before they can be judged? And the other one is, is it possible for anyone who does not hear the name of Jesus Christ to have eternal life in the presence of God? And we live in a time when those questions are confused. We we have this uh, sense of fairness going on inside of us that says, well, if they don't hear the name of Jesus, then maybe God will do something else. Maybe they'll have a vision or a dream or they'll, they'll have some other kind of answer. And the real issue goes to why is it that people are under the judgment of God? We need to be very clear about this. And I realize I've said this many times in 25 years. I need to say it again. We need to have it... In our minds and our understanding, friends, people are not condemned to hell because they haven't received Jesus Christ. They are condemned to hell because they have sinned against a holy God. We need to be very clear about that. It's like a person that has a disease that is universally fatal have AIDS. They're going to die. There's no remedy for this. And then someone has a remedy. They have to accept the cure. They have to take the medicine. They have to receive the healing. If they don't, you can't say, well, they died because they didn't take the vaccine. No, they died because they had the disease. In mercy, there was a cure available. Friends, we need to be very clear in our minds that people outside of the Gospel of Jesus Christ are dying because they're sick. They have sin in their lives and they are going to face God in their sin. And He is a holy God who can by no means clear the guilty. He has no other answer. When people appear before the great white throne judgment, the books are going to be open. The question is going to be, is is your name in the Lamb's book of life? You're standing here before Me in your sin. There's only one place for you to spend eternity. And that's in the lake of fire. Because you have sinned against Me. But God has provided a remedy in His grace and mercy, and that remedy is in the person of Jesus Christ. And through the blessed truths of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, there is hope. And friends, we, we in the Christian Missionary Alliance, this is one of the things that compels us, that drives us. It is the impetus behind our missionary passion to tell the world and tell I must the story of your great salvation. We have the hope. We have the cure. We can bring Jesus Christ to the lost. And God says to Ezekiel, if I say to you, such and such a people have sinned and they're going to die in judgment unless they repent and turn to Me, and you do not warn them. I, They will die in their sin and be judged, but I will hold you accountable. I will hold you guilty because you did not go. But if I say this, people are going to die in their sin unless they repent, and you go and tell them, and you bring them the message... And they do not listen to you. They will die in their sin and be judged, but I will not hold you guilty because you have done what I ask and given them the hope of salvation. Do you understand what I'm talking about this morning? You know, I I was trying to think of that analogy and and think of the the explanation of that. We wish that we could say, well, they have faith that they became Buddhist or they became Muslims or, or they have some kind of faith. Friend, if you need a cure for AIDS, it doesn't help to get a vaccine for polio. It doesn't help to get a vaccine for some other problem. So many times we, we want to sort of assuage our conscience and make it nice because, well, perhaps as long as they have a God, it'll be alright. Isn't God the same everywhere? Don't all people ultimately relate to Him? No. The only remedy is in the one who shed his blood on a cross outside of Jerusalem and rose again on the third day from the grave. His name is Jesus. He is the only remedy for sin. There is no other solution. God is a merciful God, loving and full of grace. He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. But like Nineveh, there will come a day, if there is persistent rebellion, there will come a day when the time of grace is over and the day of judgment has come. People will pay for their sin. They will face a holy God who is not looking on them with kindness, but in his wrath. The cross is there. Jesus has died. We have the answer. I pray this morning that as we think about these realities, that God will give us a love for unlovely people. That God will give us compassion and grace upon those who are hateful and cruel. Like the Ninevites whom God offered hope under Jonah. Every man, woman, and child is loved by God and needs an opportunity to hear the message. We have the message. May God give us the grace to carry it, to tell it, to share it. Because one day, after... They've breathed their last. The scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. And the picture of God is very different than for those of us that are safe in Jesus Christ. May God not only fill us with gratefulness for our salvation, but with a compassion to share the story. Father, Thank you that you do not leave us wondering who you are or what you are like. You have explained yourself clearly in your word. You comfort us with the assurance that when wicked people overrun, it seems, the godly, there will be a day of judgment. But you also remind us that you allow ungodly people to keep breathing because you do love them and you want to give them a chance. You are long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. You want to give them a chance. And we have the message of hope. What can man do to us What can man do to us? We are safe in you forever. But we could perhaps bring them with us by introducing them to Jesus Christ. Father, will you fill us with your love and mercy? In the name of Jesus, amen.